0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the BayCare Clinic podcast. My name is Alicia Schertz, and I'll be your host for this episode. I'm here with Dr. Heather Stefaniak of Aurora BayCare Urological Surgeons to discuss women and incontinence. While it can sometimes feel embarrassing, loss of bladder control is a common issue, and there is hope. Dr. Stefaniak is here today to discuss common causes of incontinence and treatment options available for patients. Thanks for joining us today, Doctor. Hi, thank you. So incontinence can happen in both men and women, but we're specifically talking about incontinence issues in women today. Can you discuss briefly what your patients are going through? What are you seeing and how does incontinence present itself?
1: Sure. Uh, it's a wide wide range of presentations. Um, this can be, you know, 30-year-old, 40-year-old, um, it could be children too, but um, But it can be uh, younger age, older age. Um, There's two different types of sort of presentations uh, based on what the problem is. Um, So if somebody has a bladder that may be overactive, then they come in with a strong urge to urinate very frequently. Um, those people are kind of mapping out where bathrooms are. They, when they need to go, they have seconds to be able to get there. So, a classic, um, uh, situation is if, you know, they're coming home from being out doing errands or something. Uh, They kind of have an urge they need to go as they're getting their keys out of their purse to unlock the door then it's a real strong urge and then suddenly they're leaking and losing a large amount of urine. Um, So that's kind of an urgency frequency situation. Sometimes that can also be getting up at night frequently so it's not unusual for us to see patients that are getting up four or five times a night. Um, to be able to urinate, and if they don't, then they can potentially have leakage then, too. Um, The other type of leakage is due to a support problem. So, in women, after childbirth, after pelvic surgery, such as a hysterectomy, um, the support of the bladder and the urethra can become... Lessened uh, or weakened um, so that when they're doing things like exercise, like coughing uh, or jumping or running or sometimes a laugh, um, <clears throat> when there's stress on the bladder, then they can lose a little bit of urine with activity um, or stress on the bladder. So that, that, you know, there's, and sometimes people can have both of those situations going on. Sometimes they can have urgency frequency due to an overactive bladder but then they can also have that support problem. So, sometimes it's a little bit of both issue. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, it sounds like there's a a wide variety, and while this can sort of be an embarrassing topic for people to talk about, how common of a problem is this for for your patients?
1: Numbers, I mean, it's probably one in five women, you know, I mean, uh, over the age of 40 have some sort of incontinence issue, so it's very very common um, and it you know some women ask well is this a normal spectrum as I get older I'm gonna'm I'm going to have this it, it doesn't it's not um, it, it's not every woman that has this after the age of 70 or anything it's you know about one in five women that experience this mm-hmm. okay.
0: yeah. <laughs> L- Let's talk a little bit about that and I'm getting an echo on the line so I'm gonna stop for a moment. Oh, sorry. That's okay. Um, yeah, let's talk a little bit about that and and some of the more common causes of incontinence. So is this something that happens as we just age, or, or what are some of the common causes that people might be able to identify? Uh, from a, So again, I'll kind of talk about you know the stress
1: um, stress incontinence. You know uh, leakage with movement. Um, that is typically related to the muscles of the pelvis weakening. Um, also, if you have had pelvic surgery, like your the uterus itself does give some support to the bladder and the urethra. So as the um, if the uterus is removed for whatever reason, then there's less support. So, um, typically stress leakage is due to pelvic surgery or childbirth. Um, that can kind of weaken the muscles down there. Um, so the stress leakage is typically some sort of pelvic, I mean, for lack of a better word, trauma. I mean, having a child is fairly traumatic to the pelvis. So, um, so that can, you know, um, Weaken those muscles from an overactive bladder standpoint. It can be sometimes it's neurologic condition. So we see a lot of women with, um, like muscular sclerosis where multiple sclerosis, excuse me, um, that, um, they have a neurogenic type issue going on. So some. There's a center in your brain that normally sends signals to your bladder to be able to urinate in a normal way. What happens in some neurologic conditions is that there's abnormal signals going to the bladder so that um, the bladder becomes spastic and spasms more often than it should. That can be, like I said, MS can cause that. Diabetes can sometimes be an issue. Um, Spinal cord injury, any type of or strokes can can sometimes do that. So we see that a lot with neurologic-type conditions, that they start having overactivity of the bladder and leakage. There is definitely a subset of people that don't have a neurologic condition and still have an overactive bladder, um, I would say probably 30% of the time, we see those women with an overactive bladder. We don't really have a cause. I mean, we know that there's abnormal signals causing the bladder to spasm. We just don't have a a reason. So, we haven't quite figured out everyone just yet.
0: Mm -hmm. And you had mentioned it just briefly as well, but this isn't necessarily an issue of aging, right? So, as we get older, we shouldn't just expect to have issues like this.
1: Um, Sorry, you were kind of, it was, a, the question was, um, it's not, not it's not a process of aging, that, that was the question. Right, correct. Sorry, you were, it was like getting wiggy in there for a second. Um, definitely not a... Um, a process—it's not a normal process of the bladder to become overactive as you age. Um, it's. Women are, as you age, have more other have other risk factors, so, you know, the increased risk of stroke and diabetes, and, you know, they have other medical comorbidities, so those things can be leaving, leading to the overactive bladder or the, you know, urge leakage, um, but it's not, you know, a normal process. It's not the normal
0: process of aging that every woman's going to have an overactive bladder. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and you just talked yeah, about it. Even- and you just talked about it specifically those risk factors, so what are the risk factors that maybe make some women more susceptible to incontinence issues
1: um, definitely medical comorbidities like I mentioned any you know underlying neurologic condition um, Definitely also, so neurologic conditions, general health issues um, um, can be a problem. Obesity, uh, more pressure on the bladder can cause the bladder to be more irritable. Um, So definitely, um, morbid obesity can be a risk factor. Um, From a stress incontinence standpoint, that leakage when you're moving around, um, really it's just pelvic surgery, having children... Um, Obesity can also affect the stress incontinence because if there's more pressure from body mass, um, if there's more pressure on the bladder, that can lead to more stress leakage as well. Um, Some things that, you know, um, not necessarily risk factors, but things that make the bladder more irritable, um, definitely things in the diet can make the bladder more irritable. So the classic, you know, thing that we sometimes see people coming in and saying, I'm up to I, I'm urinating constantly and oh by the way I drink two pots of coffee a day. <laughs> well, I mean I know that sounds like common sense, but um, sometimes it's that um, <laughs> yeah. sometimes that happens. So the um, irritants that we see that really affect the bladder are um, coffee, both the decaf and regular. So the coffee like. The caffeinated coffee, the caffeine is a problem because it's a diuretic and an irritant, but then the acidity of coffee. So anything acid, so coffee is very acidic, even decaf coffee is acidic. So other acidic foods can be an irritant like um, like fruits, um, tomatoes, um, citrus fruits. Um, those things, can, the acidity of things can be a real irritant to the bladder. Um, alcohol, uh, chocolate. There are um, certain dyes that are in some some drinks. Like red dye is classic for being a real irritant to the bladder. So people are like, I'm drinking, you know, six red Gatorades a day because I want to stay hydrated. Um, That red dye um, can be an irritant to the bladder as well. So sometimes it's a matter of us just talking to patients and educating them that you know these are things that you know now if you're going through, you know, you're wearing Depends because you're, you know, so incontinent and you're drinking two cups of coffee a day, I, you know, you completely cutting out your coffee may not make you perfect, um, but definitely some element of um, kind of watching those irritants in the, in the diet. Huh?
0: Yeah, absolutely. That, that makes perfect sense. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about um, maybe paint the picture for us, about how maybe these incontinence issues can impact a person's life. So it may seem obvious as you mentioned, but can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing in your patients or what they're coming in with as far as as what they're dealing with on a day-to-day basis with these issues?
1: Yeah, I mean it's um, it's really a, a very big quality of life problem. Um, so you know, I have patients that don't travel anymore because they're worried about. On a plane and um, or driving somewhere, they, you know, I have patients up in Sturgeon Bay, for example, that don't want to go to even Green Bay because they know they're going to have to pull over like five
0: times. Oh, I think we lost. House in Milwaukee Oh, hello. Yep, I got you back there. Yep. The last I part I heard there. was um, <laughs> Sturgeon Bay. Um. Okay, Uh, so I was saying that some
1: people don't want to travel because they, like if they're driving, they know they're going to have to pull over on the side of the road five times on the way from Sturgeon Bay to Green Bay, and they don't even want to do that. Or maybe they don't want to get on a plane, or maybe they don't want to spend the night at their kid's house in Milwaukee because they don't want to bother them with getting up five times a night. Um, They definitely... um, have to, all these people will likely have to wear some sort of product, so they're like carrying pads with them, maybe even like full adult diapers they're sometimes having to wear, so there, I have a lot of women that are like, I don't even go out of my house because... I don't have a purse big enough to carry all the stuff that I need. So it really becomes a isolating thing because they don't want to go anywhere. They're worried about the smell of urine and are people going to know? And it's really a very big uh, detriment to quality of life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So when does it become a problem or something that they should see a doctor about? How When should they see a doctor about these issues?
1: If, um a lot of these people are seeking us out because of the quality of life issues um, so that's the issue is that these are not um these are not like uh, there isn't a um, life or death type, you know, I mean, you're, you're not going to die from having incontinence, but you are going to be isolated and not want to go anywhere. And then all of the other issue is that if you're wearing pads all the time, and wet, then that can lead to urinary tract infections. And then urinary tract infections can be a real problem that would potentially can require hospitalizations and bladder damage, kidney damage. So definitely, if people are starting to have recurrent urinary tract infections because of their underlying wetness and wearing of pads. That's definitely someone we need to see, but a lot of patients, it's really patients come to see me because they're sick of being wet, Um, and um, that's when... So, it's really up to the patient um, with the caveat that if there's urinary tract infections or... um, you know, or let's say they have a catheter or something like that because they're going so often and someone puts a catheter in, well, then they definitely need follow-up
0: with us. Um,
1: but a lot of times it's just quality of life. They're bothered enough that they come to see us.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so let's talk about some of those treatment options available to women suffering from loss of bladder control. So th- there is hope for people and they, and, they, and they can get help. So what can you do and where do you start with your patients?
1: Sure. Um, I mean, the first thing we do is, you know, we don't have to do anything. So if someone comes in to see me and is like, I'm okay with wearing these pads, fine, you know what I mean? But usually they're coming to see me because they're not fine with wearing pads. So um, sometimes it is just a matter of talking about dietary modifications, also just behavioral things, um, you know, urinating um, planning, we tell people to do timed voiding, which means rather than waiting for the urge to urinate, try to urinate every few hours. Um, the thought there is that if your bladder is more empty on a regular basis, there's less irritability and there's less, you know, less likelihood of leakage. So, sometimes we just do <clears throat> those types of conservative things. If they've done those things and they're like okay you know i'm I'm at the next step um there are again kind of uh, tailored to what type of leakage it is um there's definitely lots of options and over from an overactive standpoint the first treatment option is typically medications so the bladder is spasming due to um neurotransmitters for neurotransmitters are little proteins that bind onto the bladder, causing the bladder muscle to squeeze. So there are medications that block those receptors on the bladder. That's a little like molecular that people don't really care about, but essentially there's a class of medications that we can use to help with the spasming of the bladder. Um, so medication is usually the first line. If any medication that I'm sure people are aware, like there's side effects. So if people have side effects from the medications, which typically are dry mouth or constipation, two great side effects everyone loves. Um, if the side effects are a limiting factor, then for an overactive bladder, overactive bladder the other options are we can do Botox um, for bladder overactivity. Um, the idea there is that The bladder is a muscle, so if we inject Botox um, into the muscle of the bladder, that calms it down so that it isn't as spastic. Botox in, like for cosmetic reasons, Botox in your face is actually relaxing the muscle under the skin to help with wrinkles. So, uh, But we can do Botox in the bladder, which works very, very well. Um, The other option is there is a device called InterStim, And interstim is, in a way, a pacemaker of the bladder. So we can target one of the um, the nerves that go to the bladder and implant a little um, electrode into that nerve to calm that nerve down so that there isn't as much spasming going on in the bladder. So that's, that's kind of what we do for an overactive bladder is either medications. If people fail them or have side effects, now we think about Botox or interstim. If it's stress incontinence, you know, they come to me and they have, they have no urgency or frequency, but they can't jump on a trampoline without leaking um, or they can't run or something like that. Um, typically, those patients, the conservative things to do are Kegel exercises. Kegel exercises are pelvic floor exercises to strengthen those muscles to help with support. So people might people sometimes ask, like, well, what's a Kegel? How do I do that? Um, if you're, for women, if you're, and men, if you're urinating and you kind of squeeze the pelvic muscles to stop the urine stream, that's what a Kegel is, is squeezing those muscles. Sometimes for women, it's, it's um, helpful to know if you're doing the correct squeezing by if you have a finger in the vagina and you're squeezing the pel- the pelvic muscles, you can actually see, you can actually feel that the muscle tone increase when you're doing the Kegel. So doing Kegels, you know, I have people, people trying to do 100 Kegels a day, you know, squeeze those muscles, hold for five seconds then relax and do 100 of those. People sometimes are like, yeah, right, I'm not going to do that. But um, it really does. <laughs> it really, it's, it's, Kegels can be very helpful, but it is something you have to do on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Um, if Kegels are like, "eh, I've done them, I'm, you know, I'm still leaking," then next options are sometimes we have the patients um, see there are um, physical therapists that do just work with the pelvic floor, and they can be kind of do more targeted therapies there. So p- physical therapy is sometimes an option. Um, Surgical options are also out there. Um, So, if support is a problem, sometimes we can do something called a sling. And what a sling is, is if the muscles around the urethra have relaxed, we can put in a material to pull the urethra up to give it more support. And that can be very, very effective. That typically is an outpatient procedure, but it is a general anesthetic requiring, you know, a a surgery. the final, the final option is that you know, some of these older ladies are like, I don't know that I want to have any sort of um, incision or you know that kind of type of thing. There is a less invasive option um, that is a procedure called coaptite. And coaptite is, in a way, sort of a caulk. Um, <laughs> so what we do is we go in with a scope, and if the urethra is not completely closing and allowing urine to leak out, then what we can do is put in a little needle and inject this material underneath the urethra to bulk it up so that it kind of closes off the urethra. Um, that can be helpful. Um, it usually is something also done in the operating room, but it doesn't involve any sort of incisions. So that's kind of a nice option of like having anything major is not, you know, maybe they have a lot of Uh, Other medical issues and like doing an incision may be problematic, then coaptite is a nice option.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like there's uh, plenty of options Uh, available for patients. Um, If I am someone who's dealing with these issues and it's significantly affecting my lifestyle, what is the best course of action for me or where do I begin?
1: Um, I mean, if you're a family doctor, I mean, sometimes we have um, primary care physicians start the process of, you know, they may prescribe a medication and try that. Um, if it's the patient themselves, then, you know, first, the first step is, about it. There are options. You know, a lot of women are like, I'm not going to tell anybody that I'm leaking just because it's embarrassing. So the first step is like, either tell your doctor, if you've told your doctor and you feel like you're not getting anywhere, I mean, definitely coming in to see us um, at Care Urology would be a great option. I mean, we have lots of things uh, lots of possibilities out there to help. I mean, one of the first things I usually tell, tell patients who are often in tears, I mean, these women are often, like, in tears in my office because they don't want to go anywhere and they don't want, you know, they're they're just tired of it. Um, the first thing I usually tell them is that we we have options. We can make this better. So um, it's first talking to people about it and then coming to see us with BP. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And what can I expect from that first appointment? Is there anything that I need to do as a patient or anything or any information that I should have prepared for you if I come in? Um, typically, that's the first
1: appointment. I mean, the first appointment is really gathering, you know, what, what's what been going on, symptoms, I'll likely, um, you know, knowing
0: what... Oh. I think we, we lost you there for a minute, Dr. Um, Stefaniak. Oh. Could you could you just repeat your answer to that question?
1: Maybe maybe it's better in a second.
0: Okay, one second then uh, just so one I get... second. Okay. I can hear you better now. Can you hear me better? Yep, now it's good. Yeah, no? Okay. okay. Dang two rivers dead zone. I always <laughs> I knew it was gonna be.
1: Um, what are we talking about now? Oh yep. what 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 to expect yep. in the first visit? Um, So, nothing that the patient has to prepare other than knowing what their medical history is, knowing what their medications are. In in general, whenever you go see a doctor, knowing what medications, like my name is always good, rather than the blue pill or the red pill or whatever, like I don't know what those are. Um, (laughs) So, just having a knowledge of what your medications are, what your medical history is, but typically at the first appointment, it's just a fact-finding, you know, like gathering information, what type of leakage do you experience? I will likely do an exam, so kind of look down below, um, do a pelvic exam. Um, we will check a urine to make sure there's no infection. Um, so that's definitely be prepared to. to be prepared to urinate, um, not on demand, but like, you know, when you're coming to see me, often people are like, oh, I just went to the bathroom in the waiting room. Well, I need a urine sample because surprisingly, sometimes people can have infections um, and that could be a reason that their incontinence is worse. Um, So that's um, just be prepared to urinate and then, you know, I'll be taking a look at things. Usually that first meeting is you know, we kind of lay out the like what type of leakage I think it is. We'll give you some treatment options. There are times where I do additional testing. <laughs> so there's there's testing that we can do to really identify. Okay, what's more of the problem? Is it support or is it overactivity? So there are sometimes subsequent appointments that involve testing, um, but that's something we would determine at the first appointment.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, is there anything else? I'm getting an echo, so I'm going to repeat that again. Okay. Is there? Oh, let me start over. <laughs> ah, fantastic. So, Dr. Stefaniak, we've covered a lot today. Is there anything else that you want to add or any last words of wisdom you want to share for for our listeners?
1: Um, I mean, incontinence is not something that you, it's not a normal process. It's not a normal process of aging. Um, it's something that you don't have to be embarrassed about. Very, very common in women and men. I mean, for people reading this, this is something that men can experience as well. Um, but there are lots of treatment options. The first step is talking about it, then coming to see us if it's would be. Um, so lots of options out there so that we can
0: get you dry. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for talking with us us today. today. Great. Thank you. We really appreciate you taking the time. Dr. Heather Stefaniak is a urological surgeon with Aurora BayCare Urological Surgeons. She currently sees patients in Green Bay and Sturgeon Bay. Thank you all for listening. Subscribe now to hear more BayCare Clinic podcasts. And to learn more about BayCare Clinic or to request an appointment, visit us online at baycare.net. I thought that went really well.